Well, you might not know this about me just yet, but a long time before I ever dreamed of becoming a minister later on in my childhood, more than anything in the world, as I was a very young boy, I had dreamed of playing in the NBA as a professional basketball player. I mean, I could dream in those days, believe me. And, you know, as a kid, I would shoot a basketball in my backyard for an hour every single day before school. I would play all throughout the day during recess, and then I would get home from school, and I would hit that backyard and shoot that ball for like three or four hours every single day. So as you might imagine, I developed a, a good um, shot. Well, I get to that age, and I mean, I, I love to just play for fun. Whether it was all by myself in the yard or with, with friends just, you know, um, if we were having a good time. I mean, I, I enjoyed this more than anything. And yet I get a little bit older and I quickly learn that, that when it's no longer just for fun and we're playing in a serious way, I stopped enjoying that very quickly because it was me against you. And, and everybody on that court had the attitude that, that I'm going to crush you. I'm better than you and I'm going to crush you. I'm going to get right in your face. I'm going to elbow you and I'm going to, to be greater than you are. And for anybody who goes through their life who has an inferiority complex, that is not going to go very well with you. I never tried out for a team in my entire life, but the only team that I ever played for was, was an eighth grade YMCA. And in our very first game, I'll never forget this, I had this guy who I was guarding, and he goes up for a shot, and I swat it out of bounds, and I block his shot. But I walk up to him, I don't know why I, I had done this, but I walk up to this guy, and I apologize to him for blocking a shot during the game. And my coach calls a timeout, and he calls us all over, gets right in my face, uses a couple of adjectives that were very colorful, so colorful that I can't, can't quote them here in this um, hearing. But he said, oh, la, la, la. what are you doing? Don't apologize to him for blocking a shot. Do it again. And then once you do it again, block a shot again. Stop with this apologizing creek, right? And so that was pretty much the end of my, my um, career in basketball. It never quite worked out for me because, I mean, in, in that kind of a setting, it is ultra competitive. And if you are the least competitive person in the world, that's just not the place for you. And yet I imagine that as I had apologized to that guy as I blocked a shot, I, I imagine that that almost had surprised my um, coach as well as that, that other player as much as all the people who are standing on a mountainside one day. And they hear Jesus pronounce all of these blessings in very unusual ways in this world that they had never heard before. And they hear Jesus say, blessed are the gentle. Because all of, all of those souls in this world who are gentle, they are going to inherit the earth. And as Jesus says, blessed are the gentle, it is a Greek word which means meek, it means gentle, and it means mild in spirit. And it's something that we read all throughout in Scripture. It's a person who, if we were to see them, we would, we would identify them as someone who is not exactly self-important. Oftentimes, a person who is gentle is classified as very shy. It is... Oftentimes, among everybody in a room, it is the very quietest person in that room, either in word or in spirit. And again, it's all over Scripture. 
As we read Jesus say, blessed are the meek, this is the beatitude which is also a fruit of the Spirit. As the Apostle Paul writes the church in Galatians, he says that the fruit of the Spirit and among them is gentleness, meekness, mildness of spirit. As he writes to, to another church of Philippi, he says, let your gentle spirit be made known to all people in this world. As he writes to another church at Colossae, he says, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, patience, and gentleness. And we can see verse after verse that, that I have not even mentioned here all throughout Scripture saying, this is what a Christian is to actually look like. That another word for a Christian is a person who is meek and who is gentle. And this is wonderful. This is incredible stuff. And yet there's only one problem with this. And that problem is this is not at all the way that, that our world works, is it? If you try to be meek or gentle or mild in this world, this is what is coming our way right here. If you ask the world, who is a gentle person? A lot of our culture and our world is going to say that is not a character virtue. That is a character defect. If you are a person who is meek and who is gentle, you are a pushover. You are a weak-minded individual. You are a coward. Now, it's okay for a woman to be gentle and to be meek, but if you're a guy who's aspiring to be gentle and meek, that's kind of effeminate, right? That kind of makes you not as much a man as I am because I'm nothing like that. I'm not going to be gentle one moment in my life. A lot of people have that response to it. I found it funny, even in a dictionary, I discovered that, that the word meek, um, at least in part in Webster's Dictionary, is defined in part as one who is deficient in spirit and in courage. And so if you ask our dictionary, it says that a person who is meek is, is pretty much a coward, is a pushover, is a doormat for other people. And in our country, I imagine if we had such a thing as, as American Beatitudes, it would be something like this. Blessed are the loudest, most aggressive personalities in a certain place. Blessed are the most confrontational, pushiest, most ultra-competitive, overconfident people in the room who live to put people in their place. Have you ever known anybody like this? who just has to be the loudest person in the room, who always has to be better at everything than everybody else. Everything is this, this huge, elaborate competition to them. And they just look for any opportunity that they have to correct somebody or to put them in their place. Because after all, we are living in this world where, where the mantra is, is that it's all about the survival of the fittest. It's all about first come, first serve, and, and elbow and claw, and, and do whatever you can do to get to the very top of the ladder. And I find it very interesting in our text how, how Luke also repeats all of the Beatitudes, except for this one about being gentle. It's probably not how it went as Luke had compiled his gospel, but in a sense, I imagine Luke saying, okay, Jesus, I'm on board with you, as you say, blessed are the poor in spirit. I, I kind of get that one. It makes sense to me. And when you mourn, that is also a good thing. But what is this stuff about the gentle inheriting the earth? What is, it, 
all this stuff about if you're meek, you're going to receive the land. What? I mean, has God lost his marbles here? What is Jesus? I mean, what in the world does Jesus mean when he says this? And I don't know what your experiences have been in the church, but I have encountered many people in the past in, in all kinds of places before where you get to this verse and they get very defensive and very adamant about what they believe this verse does not mean. Well, that doesn't mean I can't have my guns. That doesn't mean that I can't chew tobacco and, and do manly things and, and, and always put everybody else in their place because I enjoyed you know, all that stuff so much because of how it makes me feel. And they would spend all this time saying what this does not mean that we never got around to actually speaking about what this does mean for us as men and as individuals, as Christians. <coughs> and I, I almost blew my vocal cords there. <laughs> Whew, man, it's way too early in our message for, for that, but I, um, I digress. Um, I was at a church in Texas once, and the most quoted verse in this entire church by far was this very mysterious, obscure passage where Jesus says, bring a sword. And to them, and to a lot of them, it meant that, well, this is Jesus saying that, that if you're going to be a Christian, you've got to have guns in your house. You've got to, to stand up to people who push you. you. You've got to be a big, strong American Texan, you know. I don't care if you have guns or not. I don't care what our stance is on, on, on guns, if we're going to have them or not. I'm not going to judge you on that. But there is a problem if, if, if we as Christians care more about this verse, which we think is saying that, that it's okay to have guns, than on the Beatitudes and on the fruits of the Spirit. Because if we were to meditate on the Beatitudes and on the fruits of the Spirit, a lot of, of our well-guarded positions are going to be falling by the wayside left and right. And I wish that I could say that, that I've been a better example than, than them. And yet the truth is, is that I'm just as bad as they are. I mean, I so badly wish that I could stand here and say that, that I'm this shining example of what it means to be gentle. And yet there are, there are people in this auditorium who have witnessed firsthand me, me literally running away from an argument and from a confrontation. They have literally witnessed me shrinking away in anxiety in a certain situation. There are times in my life where, where just like anybody else, I am not exactly a spitting image of Jesus Christ. And so believe me when I say that, that I am in this just as much as you are, or as anybody else who is watching this. And so here in our text, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. That's wonderful. And we can quote that verse all day, frontwards and backwards. What does that mean, though? I mean, what in the world is Jesus speaking about, especially when he says that they shall inherit the earth? Well, I've discovered that in order for us to, to really understand what Jesus is speaking about here, we need to especially understand exactly who Jesus is speaking to on the Sermon on the Mount. Now, what we need to understand about land and about the earth is that land was a very, very, very big deal to first century Jews. 
It goes all the way back to a promise God made to Abram, all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, where, where he says that, I'm going to greatly multiply you and your name, and through your seed, all of the nations of the earth shall be blessed. God makes him a promise, and God makes his descendants a promise, that you're going to receive land, earth, as your inheritance. And yet, where this really starts becoming something that we can read in color for, for at least us, is if we read this not so much as earth or as land in a literal sense, but, but if we were to, to read this as a metaphor, that as Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, this is really a metaphor for the idea of having peace, of having a lasting abundance long after anything that is threatening you is long gone. It's having a security, comfort, or protection. We could just as easily read, Blessed are the meek, for they will have a lasting peace and abundant security, no matter what happens in this world. And yet, for everybody who is Jewish living in this time, that, that was a nice promise God made to Abraham long ago. And yet, if you live in Palestine in the first century and you're looking around, it's like it doesn't seem like God is keeping his promise here. It doesn't look like the meek are getting squat. In fact, all that is happening to the meek is that they are getting stepped on. It feels as if we are a doormat, that, that Romans are just walking all over. Because after all, as I said, Rome now is calling the shots on their very own land there in their very own earth. Caesar is ruling with an iron fist, and he's telling them what to do in their own native land. As we know, Rome was just this big, unstoppable, conquering machine everywhere that they had gone, it seems like. So if you were a first century Christian, this is not a far cry from what it had been like for you at that time. Must die. Some sooner than others. Kill it. We have enough. 
Kind of reminds you of the IRS, doesn't it? <laughs> but man, these people living in the first century, this is literally what it was like for them in many cases. I just can't imagine what that had been like for them, where, okay, as a people, we have already been conquered by, by many other nations, Assyrians, Babylonians, you name it, and now we're being occupied by Rome. We're being taxed unfairly through our noses. We're losing land, money, you name it. We're losing our very own sons and daughters because we can't afford to pay their already steep taxes. We're being defrauded. We, we are losing the land, if anything, Jesus. What do you mean that we're going to, to inherit the land when all that we are doing is we just keep losing the land? And so the solution that, that many people arrived at in the first century is that, you know what, this has gone on long enough. The only way that we as Jews are going to receive the land is if we stand up and if we rise up with, with many weapons, stockpiling swords, and we stand up to the Romans and we fight fire with fire. This is why we can read all throughout in the gospel accounts and we read about many uprisings, many insurrections. We know that one of his 12 disciples was a zealot who was standing up for this very purpose, taking the land by force. This right here is the social climate where Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, or rather, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. These are the people who want to inherit land and earth more than life itself. And yet to also understand what Jesus means when he says that, that they will inherit the land, we also have to understand what King David means in the book of Psalms in chapter 37. If you have your Bible, Psalm 37 is really where Jesus is referencing when he says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And I'll begin at verse 1 in Psalm 37. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but, but I will give us enough of it for us to perhaps understand more clearly what Jesus is speaking about. Where in Psalm 37, King David begins verse 1, and he says, Do not fret because of evildoers, or do not be envious toward those who do wrong, for they will wither quickly like the grass, and they will fade like the green herb, but rather trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your hearts. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will do it. Verse 7, he says, rest in the Lord and wait in a patient manner for him. Again, he says, do not fret because of him who prospers in the way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. And so cease from anger and forsake your wrath. Do not fret, he says it for a third time, because it only leads to evil doing. For a time is coming when evildoers will be cut off. But all of those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet just a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. And then he says in verse 11, this is where Jesus quotes when he says, But the humble, or the meek, or the gentle, they will be the ones who will inherit the land. 
and they will delight themselves in abundant in prosperity. And now we don't know exactly what is going on in David's world as he writes and as he composes this particular song. And yet the message and the theme of this is very clear to us. And the message is very evil men who are from other nations, they are living in a very violent manner towards them. And it looks like these people who are living in a corrupt manner, in a dangerous way, they are, they are advancing in the world, prospering around them. While those who love the Lord and, and who are aspiring to do what is right, they are the ones who are, are really getting crushed right now and suffering as a result of it. And so as we saw in the text, at least three times King David says, don't fret, don't fret, do not fret about this. And that word fret in the Hebrew means that, that it is anxiety which responds with rage. It is, I am scared of this thing, I am tired of this thing, and so I am going to respond by erupting with anger. King David, through the inspiration of the Spirit, says, do not do that. Do not rage in your fear, but rather have a calm and a peaceful reliance upon the Lordship of your God. Because after all, this, as King David writes, what, what he's saying in so many other words is, my God always has the last word. My God is still going to be here with his people long after these adversaries of ours are the ones who are crushed. Really what Psalm 37 is, is we hear King David saying, this is how children of God are to respond when life gets very, very unfair for us. This is how we are to react when the world becomes a very scary place. This is what it means. So what we learn from King David here, as well as Jesus later on on the Sermon on the Mount, is that regardless of, of how often we see it in our society, it is not the loudest, most pushiest, most aggressive who inherit peace and abundance and prosperity. Strangely, it's actually those who are the very quietest. It's those who are the very calmest, most gentle, tranquil, most unaggressive souls who are the ones who will receive God's peace in the very end. Now, of course, any time that we speak about what it means to be meek, there, there are all kinds of misconceptions. This does not at all mean or advocate us being oblivious to the world's perils. In fact, as Christians, we are God's very response team to many of the world's problems if we were to arise to them. And so it's not, not wrong to be concerned about the world's perils or even to, to, in our own way, correct them. But I believe what King David is communicating and emphasizing here is as a child of God, we should not be intimidated by what this world could do to us. We should not despair that we have no hope as we see the world going the way that it's going to go. But we know that the Israelites freaked out every chance that they got at the Red Sea, in the wilderness. It seems like all they're doing is just having one panic attack after another. And yet as Americans, are we really any better than they were? As Americans, it seems like every time that we have an opportunity to freak out, we jump on it, right? Anybody here remember Y2K? 
Leading up to 2000, it seems so funny now, looking back on it, but at the time, man, people were freaking out. All the computers are going to crash. My life savings is going to be you know, completely wiped out, and airplanes are just going to stop in the sky, and it's going to be the end of the world, and oh, oh, it's just going to be the worst thing ever. Actually, it looks like we're still here, right? That was almost 20 years ago. I remember in 2012, a documentary came out about Obama. I don't know if anybody had seen this documentary, but pretty much the gist of this was, it came out in 2012, and it was, don't reelect Barack Obama, because if you do, this is what America is going to look like in 2016. And people started freaking out. Oh, oh. If we re-elect Barack Obama, then, then, then everybody's going to be a Muslim by 2016 and the world's going to come to and it's going to be the end of America and Obama's going to make himself the center. <laughs> Looks like we're still here. Anybody here a Muslim? Has anybody been killed yet because of Obama? No? Okay. Well, after that, this, this guy comes along, and I remember about a year ago, I would go to bed some nights thinking that this guy is going to write the wrong thing on Twitter, and he's going to make the North Koreans so angry that they're going to drop a you know, bomb on us. And in a way, I was freaking out about this. I was thinking, ah, Trump is going to get us all blown up. And again, I just kind of look around and it's a beautiful day. The birds are singing. I've got some nice clothes on. We're still here, aren't we? I mean, it's not too late. I mean, could America one day have a nuclear bomb dropped on them? Of course it could. It might happen tomorrow. It might happen today. It might happen 80 years from now. We don't know. But the thing about Psalm 37 and Matthew 5, 5 that really, really makes me happy to be a Christian is that I could wake up tomorrow morning. I could look through the blinds, see a mushroom cloud in the sky. The Statue of Liberty in the White House could be burned to the ground, but I can know in my heart that King Jesus ain't going nowhere. I can know that Jehovah God and his throne have not been moved one inch, and that President Christ, no matter what this world does, is coming off of that throne. That is what that calm, peaceful confidence in the lordship of my God that is just so soothing in a world of anxiety and fear and fretting. Four times in this psalm, he's, he makes a promise about the land to these people who are so land-hungry. We've seen it in verses 9 and 11, but he also says in verse 22, for those blessed by him, as Jesus also says, blessed are those who are meek, will inherit the land. Verse 34, he says it again to them. I mean, just, just left and right comfort for them. He says, wait for the Lord. Keep his way no matter what is going on out there. And he will, and again, four times a promise, he will exalt you to inherit this land that you want so bad that you can actually feel it and, um, and taste it. What King David is saying over and over and over again is, is that do not fret. 
just a little while longer and you're going to see what what all of this waiting have been all about and i love so much the example of moses in exodus chapter 14 this is one of those very first times that we see them completely freak out and lose their minds in in, in fear and in fretting exodus chapter 14 um, it is of course where king pharaoh says okay you can let your people go this is it i've had enough of all this insanity but he has a change of heart and so they catch up to the israelites of the red sea it says in verse 10 of exodus 14 that as pharaoh draws near the sons of israel looked and behold the egyptians were marching after them and they became very frightened so the sons of it or it says and so the sons of israel cried out to the lord they said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us, really in other words, all this way just so that we can die at the Red Sea? It would have been better if we had never even left Egypt, in other words. But then Moses says in verse 13, do not fear. Another way of saying this is stop fretting. Do not fret about this for one second of your life. He says, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will, that's a promise, accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them ever again after this. The Lord will fight for you if you will pretty much just shut up and stop freaking out and stop worrying and stop fretting about this. The Lord is going to be fighting on your behalf if you will just be silent and that you will fret no more. And every single morning, I, as, as a treatment for anxiety, every single morning, I, I literally have to start my day with an hour of meditation. And, and every single morning, I just remember all of those people who had traumatized me growing up. But the most comforting thing in the world is exactly what Moses says, you are going to one day see them no more. And I know that that, that was a long time ago and, and all those people have been left far behind. They can't hurt me anymore. And now I feel nothing but, but love and security and peace in my heart. Security. In that sense, in some ways, we can already inherit the land in that sense, knowing it's a metaphor. If we will be, be meek as all of this is happening and gentle and mild, we're going to be amazed at the comfort and security that we find after our adversaries are, are no more. And yet it still begs a question, doesn't it? I mean, how can we consistently be a man or a woman of gentleness day in, day out? I mean, how is that even a possibility for us? I don't aspire to have all the answers in life. And yet one thing that, that I am discovering in terms of at least how to become more, more gentle and, and, and meek is that the only way that, that I've ever learned how to do this is to go to the only person where meekness comes natural to them, and that's Jesus. As Jesus says in Matthew's Gospel, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, all of you, in other words, who might be fretting about what this world might do to you, if you will do that, I will give you rest. He says, for I am gentle, I am meek and humble in heart, 
And if you bring all of that to me and you do not freak out or to fret, then you're going to find rest for your souls. We marvel at how Jesus is being accused in a false manner later on. And he's standing before a Roman governor, very intimidating thing. And they're listing all of these trumped up charges on him, but he's not saying anything. And Pilate's like, aren't you going to respond to any of this? And yet Jesus just, just very gently, very calmly, meekly, he just stands there and he is the gentle lamb of God. A lot of times we like to envision him as the lion of Judah. And after all, he is the, the great lion of Judah. And yet I don't think that we envision him enough as our great example in this thing called the Christian life as the gentle, meek lamb of God. I mean, if it were Americans up on that cross, that would have gone much differently, right? I've got rights! You know, I'm an innocent man. And yet not Jesus. There's just nothing but love and gentleness in his heart. Even as they said, come down from the cross. And he could have done a lot more than that. And yet as his followers, though, if it happened to Jesus... Anybody who aspires to live in a gentle way in this world is going to be easy prey for all of those emotional vampires in our world. I mean, how in the world do you be a gentle person if you have a coworker who is, who is gunning for you every single hour of your workday? How in the world do you pull this off when you're a woman living in Alabama in 1956 and you're black? And yet, I heard this example once in a sermon, and it is the greatest example of a person other than, than, than God who's exemplified it. Well, in 1956, Martin Luther King Jr. is away from his house late one night when he hears that, Mr. King, your, your house had just been firebombed. And by the way, your, your wife and your kid had been inside the house at the time. And so Martin Luther King Jr. rushes to his house and gratefully his wife and his kid have not been harmed in any way. And yet he sees many white reporters in this house. And one of the things that they, they um, are, are going to bring to his attention is that there are, are many of your supporters and they are, are surrounding your house. They won't let us leave. And oh, by the way, a couple of them have weapons. So as Martin Luther King hears about this, this is what he was overheard saying that has been recorded in history. Where he goes up to his followers and he says, don't get panicky. Don't get your weapons. If you have weapons on you right now, take your weapons home. He who lives by the sword will perish by the sword. Remember that that is what Jesus had said. We are not advocating violence here. We want to love our enemies. And then he said, I want you to love our enemies. Be good to them. This is what we must live for. And then he says, we must meet hatred with love. And as I heard somebody once respond to this, they had asked, does that sound like, like weakness to you? Does that sound like a man who is a pushover or who is effeminate because he's gentle and he's meek? 
You see, actually, what gentleness and what meekness is, is a very difficult and a very beautiful measure of strength within a person. And yet the question for us this morning is, I just want to ask you as well as me myself, what makes you want to explode with rage? What is there that a person might do that will make you want to just slug them right in the middle of the throat? Or maybe what the question is for us, if, if we can't relate with that, is what in this world makes me fly off the handle and to freak out with worry or to panic? Here's what we need to do. It's so simple, but it's so life-changing. When we find ourselves wanting to, to fret, first of all, slow down. It's what I've learned in anxiety treatment. When my mind is racing a million miles an hour, you got to slow your mind down. Then once you've slowed down, remember from Psalm 37 that God always has the last word. And then, with that in heart and mind, let gentleness win. When you're there with your spouse late at night and you just got home from, from a very long day of work and tensions are, are, I mean, this high because of your bills and your finances and you, you are sleep deprived too. She says something or, or maybe he says something and it rubs you the wrong way and you've got the perfect comeback on the tip of your tongue. Oh man. And yet it is so unloving. It's the kind of thing that would absolutely shatter their, their hearts. Rather than just blurting that out haphazardly, slow down and let gentleness win. I think about in traffic. Traffic is really my, my main weakness. I don't like being in a car where I have another car right on my bumper. Anybody else struggle with that? It triggers a lot of stuff that I don't want to be triggered. And a man that has been working on me for, God bless that woman, but what I've learned from, from, from Amanda is anticipate that it's going to happen. Somebody's going to be a jerk to you when I get in this car. It's going to happen. I can't control that. But what I can control is I'm going to, to choose right now, no matter what anybody does to me, cuts me off, flips me off, um, no matter what they do, I'm not going to fret about it. What Amanda has introduced me to is, is just get into the right lane and go a few miles an hour slower than the speed limit. If they don't like how slow you're going, they will just whip right by you and get on with their life. And it has been a life saver for me. As we go into yet another presidential election next year, 2020, you better believe people are going to be on the edge, angry, bitter, upset angry at the world. But regardless of, of if we are Republican or Democrat or Independent, again, Jesus Christ is not getting off of that throne. Slow down. Remember that God always has the last word. And as hard as it is for us at times, let gentleness win. The greatest definition of meekness is this, a friend of mine. He said that meekness is not rolling over and taking it. Gentleness is not becoming a doormat or avoiding conflict, but rather meekness is having the courage to walk into any conflict and holding our ground and responding in a way that gives life, that gives grace, and that breeds peace into us and to other people. 
Being meek does not mean that, that we just bury our heads in the sand and just hide until Jesus comes. And yet it also does not mean fretting about what this world may or may not do to us. Because after all, according to, to Jesus, only the gentle are going to flourish in the end. The only ones who will receive the abundant peace in the very end are the ones who are meek and gentle. 